Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we're going to have this time together. I'm very excited about the show today. David Wheaton's going to be joining me in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on the fantastic book of Genesis. I think we're all the way up to about chapter 37 at this point, so that's going to be uh, outstanding. And then Marshall Siegel will be joining me. He is uh, an author over at DesiringGod.org, and he's a managing editor there. And we're going to talk about the grace of good rebuke. How to Love with Hard Words. That's going to be interesting. And then second hour is going to be the prayer series continuing. Our very special guest today is Dr. Marcus Bachman, talking about how important prayer is in the transformation of a person through counseling, whether it's an individual or maybe you're there as a couple doing marital counseling, but how important prayer is in those transformational times. But to get things started, let's uh, go right to David. David, of course, is um, the host of the Christian Worldview. You can go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David. He has got a weekly program on Saturdays. His content and delivery is always outstanding. One of my favorite guests. Always great to have him on. David, welcome. Hello, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. Really good. And I'm good. excited that we're back in Genesis. This has been a fantastic series, and we're in chapter 37, 38. And when we get finished, I want to start over right from the beginning and do it all over. <laughs> I know. Well, we have 13 chapters to go, and actually, uh, it's so full of relevance, and the stories are incredible. Of course, they're true stories, and mm-hmm. and uh, they have so much we can pull from for our lives today. That's why God. That's why God included it in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should just uh, recap uh, where we are in the story. Yeah, it's been a while since we've talked, so we're up to, as I mentioned, Genesis chapter 37, and this is the the portion of Genesis where. Uh, the sons of Jacob, there's 12 sons of Jacob. He was the third patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. He had 12 sons. They have come back into the promised land now. They were away for a time when Jacob went to go find a wife, and he came back with four. <laughs> and uh, they're back in the land now. And his favored son is named Joseph, the Joseph in the coat of many mm-hmm. uh, colors, of course. Everyone's familiar with that. And so... Um, Jacob's favorite son is Joseph, and there's a great resentment. Not not surprisingly, when there's a, a favorite child, uh, the other siblings tend to resent that. And so Joseph's siblings really resent him. And not only that, they actually hate him uh, for being so favored uh, and, and for these dreams that he has. He has these dreams where he tells his brothers, I had this dream that uh, you know you all were bowing down to me. You can imagine how that goes over. And uh, so they just hate him so much, and hatred, you know, kept on the inside, eventually comes out on the outside in some terrible ways, including as far as as murder. And that's really what happens here, is when Joseph goes to visit his brothers who are shepherding the the flock, um, they see him coming from a long way off, and and their plan is they, they, you know, the time away from Joseph hasn't kind of simmered down their hatred. They decide to kill him and throw him into a pit and tell their father that a, a wild beast devoured his favored son. 
And it was only because of the oldest, Ruben, that he talked him out of it and just said, well, look, just just throw him in the pit, but don't don't kill him. Because as the oldest, he doesn't want to bear responsibility for what hap- happens to the favorite son, Joseph. So there's this encounter when, when Joseph meets the brothers. Uh, they take off his this, this special coat he wears. They throw him into a pit. And then it says, the Bible says in Genesis 37, that they, they sit down, the brothers do, to eat a meal. I mean, here they've just de- dealt with their brother in a most a terrible way. And they just sit down and eat a meal. You can see how their consciences were so hardened at this point after doing such a thing to their brother. Well, to make a long story short, instead of killing him, they decided to sell him into slavery, which maybe was probably almost as bad as killing him because they're probably never going to see him again. There are Mm -hmm. some traders coming down going to Egypt. They sell him into Egypt and uh, for 20 shekels of silver, which is the, the price of a slave, and so their their younger brother Joseph is taken down into Egypt. And just to conclude that little recap, just imagine if you're a about a 17 year old as <laughs> as Joseph was at that time, being you know looking at your brothers as they're getting smaller and smaller in the distance as you're going with people you don't mm-hmm. know into a foreign land as a slave that your brothers just slow, uh, sold you into. It's a pretty horrible situation. Oh, it's just horrible, David. I just looked up the word treachery in the dictionary: uh, willful betrayal of fidelity, confidence, or trust. I would say that Joseph experienced that with his brothers. He absolutely did. And interestingly enough, when the older brother, the oldest son, Reuben, apparently wasn't there when the other brothers sold him to these Ishmaelite traders, uh, slave traders going down into Egypt. And when he came back, he knew right away this this was a horrible, as you said, treacherous situation that had just taken place. I mean, what are they going to say? When they return to their their father, what mm-hmm. are they going to say when they return to Jacob? Uh, well, uh, Joseph is uh, well. Well, anyway, so they have to hatch a cover up. Now that the treachery continues, now they have to hatch a cover up, and so they take a goat, they slaughter the goat, they put some of the the blood from the goat on on Joseph's the special coat he has. They bring it back um, to their father, and just I just want to read uh, what, what what that little portion in Genesis 37. When they bring back and they show the coat to their father, you know, again, this is a total lie. Mm-hmm. And so the father, Jacob, tears his clothes. He puts on a sackcloth undergarment over his waist, and he mourned for his son, Joseph, for many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters got up to comfort him. And by the way, they knew that this wasn't true, and they were trying to comfort him, so to speak. But he refused to be comforted. He said, surely I will go down to Sheol, or the, the place of the dead, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for Joseph. I mean, this is just compounding treachery, not only selling your brother, but then lying to your father and seeing your father going to this, you know, like he'd rather be dead than alive mourning type of situation. Uh, you can just see here. I mean, this is the wickedness of the, the human heart. This is what the Bible says. There is, there is uh, the, the heart, the hearts of men are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This, this story, I think perfectly illustrates that. When you think of what they did to their dad, I, I get you didn't like your brother and you wanted to get rid of him, but the torment they're putting their father through is just unspeakable. It, it is, and you, you kind of go back to what we were saying right at the beginning of our conversation today, that hatred or resentment or bitterness in our hearts, the Bible says we absolutely cannot let that harbor harbor in our hearts because it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce something. It's going to grow. Bitterness is like a root 
that grows inside of us and has very, very rotten fruit. And so, you know, we get offended uh, by people. It's inevitable in life by, by people we love even. And um, it doesn't hurt the person that we hope it hurts when we get bitter. It ultimately hurts us the most. And then it will be taken out, of course, on the person to the object of our bitterness and hatred. But it's something that the Bible takes very seriously. As a matter of fact, I don't have the passage at the top of my head here, but it says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, don't let a root of bitterness grow inside of you. In other words, don't go to bed at night uh, if you have bitterness or hatred in your hearts or someone, because, again, it's going to grow. It's like a terrible, noxious weed that grows inside your soul, and it comes out and produces something very, very ho- horrible, as we see in the life of Joseph. Mm-hmm. David, I would love for you to uh, get us more um, up to speed with Reuben. Of course, he wasn't there, but uh, he did return to the pit. And why was he so upset? Obviously, I can understand basically why he's upset, but maybe you could shed some more light on, on Reuben's perspective. Yeah, he had the same reaction, by the way, a similar reaction that his dad did when they brought back the bloody coat and telling the lie that Joseph had been killed by a beast. You know, it says in in Genesis 37, 29, now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And so Reuben's response is he tore his garments, he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not in there. As for me, where am I to go? Hmm. In other words, he was already on the very much of the outs with his father, because another sordid affair. This is what's amazing about the Bible. The Bible doesn't leave these things out. It had told us in an earlier chapter that Reuben apparently had uh, had been in an incestuous relationship, I don't know, multiple times or one time, with his father's concubine. Remember, uh, Jacob had two wives and then two concubines. That was typical of the time back then. Uh, anyway, that that had put him very much at odds with his own father. And so now, not only was that against him, but now this. And as the firstborn, he was entitled to all the, you know, the inheritance and everything else that a firstborn got back then. And so now that Joseph is missing, he literally had a, a very, very horrific, uh, terrible reaction uh, to what had taken place. And uh, we're going to find out that the firstborn, the secondborn, and the thirdborn, for things they had done in the past, things then go down in the next chapter, which we'll talk about, about Judah, the fourthborn, mm-hmm. from whom the line of Christ comes, what happened to him? David, I'm going to want to first ask you how God was always in control of the circumstances, even the, even in the midst of these horrific situations. But let me take a short break, and we come back, we'll pick it up right there. David Wheaton is my guest. We'll be right back. My guest, go to the ChristianWorldView.org. You can learn more about David, listen to his podcasts, and learn about his writing. It's fantastic. The ChristianWorldview.org. All right, we're back talking about uh, Genesis chapter 37, and, and I know that God is in control of all these circumstances in the midst, David, of what seemed like just and was a horrific situation. Yeah, yeah and this is the headline kind of theme throughout all of Genesis, as we've been seeing week after week, Bill, is that even in the midst of horrible circumstances, and again, here's another horrible circumstance where you have, you know, Joseph being sold into slavery, uh, the circumstances with, you know, coming back into the land and the, the brothers, some of the brothers killing the Hivites and all the different things that are going on. 
especially in the life of Joseph. The lesson here for all, all of us is that God is sovereign. He reigns, and, and he allows, sometimes causes or allows, bad things to happen, as he did in the life of Joseph, because he has a higher purpose and a greater plan that none of them could see at the time. Uh, it, it says in, in the end of that chapter, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites, who, who took him down to Egypt, sold him in Egypt, Joseph, to Potiphar, who, is, who just happened to be the, the chief captain, the captain of the, God, the bodyguard of Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. So he went down there. He could have gone anywhere, but he gets sold into the house of Potiphar, who is Pharaoh's captain of the, the bodyguard. So you have these injustices in Joseph's life uh, in being sold down there. He didn't do anything wrong. He got sold by his brothers. He's about to be falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife, which I was told a lie. He didn't do that. He did the opposite. He's about to go to jail unjustly. But in the midst of it, and in the midst of our situations in life, maybe that we don't even cause, or just maybe we did cause, or there's there's things that go wrong for us, God is still at work in, in the midst of life's um, tragedies and, and trials. And this is how God is going to save his chosen people, the, the family of Jacob. He, in other words, he didn't go down to Egypt by accident. God allowed him to go down there because there was going to be a great famine in, in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was going to go down to Egypt. Not only he was going to be a slave, but he was going to be ascend. But just you couldn't make this up. He's going to ascend from being a slave in the house of Pharaoh's captain, the bodyguard, to being second in command in the whole land of Egypt. And so, and then his family is going to come down. He's going to save his family in the midst of this 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 uh, this famine that's coming. So again, it's a good lesson here. How is this relevant for today? Well, it's relevant today is the things that happen in our life that are so difficult. Trust God. God uses them. We, oh, let us respond the right way. Let us trust him, always responding the right way to the way God wants us to respond. And eventually God turns those things. And sometimes we find out exactly why they happen. Sometimes we don't. But we know that God always works together, always causes all things to work together for good to those who love him into those who are called according to his purpose. Mm-hmm. So, David, how does the story of Judah fit into this uh, Joseph story? Well, this is crazy. You know, if you read Genesis, you know, here we uh, were in chapter 20, uh, 37. This is where Joseph's getting sold into Egypt. And you think chapter 38, as you turn the page here, well, now it's going to tell us about Joseph in Egypt. But it doesn't. There's a whole chapter interlude. And it's, it's just a... Really, it's an unbelievably sordid story, chapter 38, about Judah. Now, this is the fourth, fourth-born son now. We've gone from Reuben, and then his two older, Levi, and I can't remember the other one off the top of my head here. Or was Re- yeah, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were the first three. Now the, it go, the, the story changed for one chapter into Judah, and that Judah, they go into this—again, it only can be described as a sordid affair. It's called the Judah Interlude where this one chapter is spent on the fourth son, Judah, after Joseph was sold into Egypt. And apparently Judah marries a woman named Shua, who, see if you can follow this now, who's a Canaanite, not a follower of God. So there's, there's one mistake. There's one thing we've seen re- recurring in this mm-hmm. book of Genesis. Don't marry, don't be unequally yoked in marriage. So they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the oldest son marries a girl named Tamar, and that's a, a key figure in this chapter. And for some reason that's not specified in Scripture, her husband, Tamar's husband, Ur, the son of Judah, was a very wicked man, and God killed him for unspecified 
reasons, but he died. And so now Tamar is a widow, and it was customary at that time for another son to bear children through the widow so that there would be inheritance rights, there would be support for the widow, and so forth. But the second son, Onan, won't do that. And so God killed him too. I mean, again, you can read this yourself in Genesis 38. It's an amazing <laughs> mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Finally, Judah, uh, Judah promises Tamar, again, the daughter-in-law, that he will give, as soon as his third son grows up to be old enough, he will give his third son to Tamar to, to have this Leverite marriage. Well, it doesn't happen. And Tamar actually dresses herself up like a prostitute and entraps her father-in-law into sleeping with her. This is Christian radio, I know, but this is in the Bible. And they have twins as a result of it. And again, you look at this situation, it's the same thing we just talked about previously. What on earth is going on here? Judah, the fourthborn from whom the line of Christ comes, uh, is is sleeping with his daughter-in-law unwittingly. Um, he, he gets found out about it, and he's so upset that she gets pregnant, then he finds out that she was the one who got her pregnant. It's a really terrible uh, uh, affair. But again, goes back to God's sovereignty in the midst of this horrible decision-making by by Judah, is that from those those two sons, uh, Perez and Zerah, that line, right over, very soon thereafter, in the next generation or thereafter, was Boaz and Ruth, from whom King David would come, and then down the road, from whom Christ would come himself. So truly an amazing story, this, this, this Judah interlude. I would just encourage listeners to read it. You know, it really shows something about Scripture, Bill, that Scripture, and I think it proves the, the truthfulness of Scripture, is why would you include something in Scripture that, that, that displayed so unfavorably upon characters that were to, to look to as models or from whom the line of Christ had come? Well, I think it's not we, shouldn't, we should not avoid chapters like that, but we should seek to understand why God put them in the Bible. And I think the main one he does here is he takes— sinful people, even exceedingly sinful people like what Judah did, and he still accomplishes his purposes through them. Yeah, that's a powerful reminder. All right, so let's talk about uh, what happened to Joseph when he arrived in Egypt. I think we're moving well, into chapter 39 now, aren't we? Yeah, and, and, this is, and this is the interesting part, because we came from Genesis 37, where we started today, mm-hmm. and we see that Joseph is favored and so forth, and then he's treated unjustly. He gets brought down as a slave to Egypt, and and then all of a sudden you have the story of Judah, and it's like, well, this is a horrible story that's you know practically you know rated that you don't even want to read about it. But then you get to Genesis 39, there's this huge contrast with just the story of Judah, where that whole thing went awry. And then Genesis 39, I just want to read just the first few verses there, because it's just, it is obvious what the contrast that God is making here. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from, bought him from the Ishmaelites, the traders, the slave traders, who had taken him down here. Now, listen to all the ways in which Joseph is described as being favored by God. As opposed to his brothers, look at the favor that Joseph has on his life. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. You know, would that we, that that was said about us. The Lord was with Bill. The word, the Lord was with David. I mean, not, nothing higher could right. be said about someone, the Lord is with you. Then it goes on, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now look at this, verse 3, now his master saw 
that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his whole house. All that he owned, he put in Joseph's charge. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. For last verse, verse 6, So Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. I mean, over and over again in those six verses, Scripture is making it very clear that the Lord's hand is upon Joseph. He's down there as a slave, but because Joseph is so in tuned to God, follows him so obediently, there's a blessing there's a blessing of obedience uh, on Joseph's life. His master sees it. There's a great testimony. Everyone observes it. Everything Joseph does is prospering. He uh, immediately ascends in position because he can be trusted and respected. The house of the Potiphar, who's not even a believer, is being blessed because Joseph is just living in the house and running the house. In other words, the Lord's blessing was upon everything that he owned. And so just an amazing story of how God, even in the midst of, a, again, a difficult circumstances, a hard circumstance, God is still blessing Joseph, and he's so many, you know, so far away from home, and the story's about to take another turn, but it's amazing to see the blessing of the Lord on Joseph's mm-hmm. life. And we're coming up on a, a big transition in Joseph's success story. <laughs> yeah, and we're not going to have time to get into that today, because this portion of Genesis 39 is a most critical yeah. part of Scripture to understand for all of us about how to overcome sexual temptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is one of the most powerful examples in Scripture, and we'll look forward to uh, to going over that next time. Yeah, we don't we don't shoehorn that in with two minutes to go. <laughs> no, no, not, not this portion. No, no, no. we're going to start with that next time we, uh, we talk. So uh, who do you have coming up on your show coming this Saturday? We're actually going to talk about talk with Twyla Brace. She's uh, with Citizens Council for Health Freedom about a lot of the changes being made as a result of the coronavirus uh, with government mandates. Uh, recently, they're talking about having you have to have like a COVID passport to travel wow. and certain things like this. How life is going to change as a result of uh, the coronavirus? Yeah, well. That is uh, at thechristianworldview.org. You can learn more about times and stations and how to listen to that. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always good to talk to you. Same here, Bill. Thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. And, of course, we're in our, I think, our 22nd episode of our study of Genesis. And we've got about 11 more chapters to go. So we're going to be continuing this until we get through the entire book. And I'm looking forward to it. Take a little break. And then when we come back, uh, Marshall Siegel will be joining me. From DesiringGod.org. Be right back.
I want to say it was a couple of weeks ago at my Bible study, we talked about rebuking and, and the word rebuke, and we were all kind of curious about it. And I tried, I took a stab at it, trying to explain it, and I don't know how well I did. So I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Marshall Siegel, and he wrote a brand new piece, came out today, on the grace of good rebuke, how to love with hard words. Marshall's a writer and, and managing editor at DesiringGod.org. He's the author of Not Yet Married, The Pursuit of Joy and Singleness and Dating. He graduated from Bethlehem College and Seminary. He is married to his uh, wife, Faye, and they have two kids. He just had a new baby seven months ago, and they live right here in Minneapolis. Marshall, welcome. So great to be on the show. Yeah, it's Thanks really nice. Me. We love the Desiring God people. We get John and Pam Bloom on and, and Greg, and we, we got it's an all-star lineup. Well, we love the opportunity to come on here and talk about Jesus. Yeah. Well, let's learn a little bit about you first. Uh, you are from uh, where? I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, okay. originally. That's where I grew up. Um, Fairfield is the town just outside Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And how did you, you landed at Bethlehem uh, Seminary? Yeah. So I went to college at Wake Forest University um, there and did a, just a liberal arts degree. But while I was there, I went to the Passion Conference um, and saw John Piper speak there for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it just blew me away. I'd never heard anything like it. And I'd never heard anybody handle the word the way that he did. And I left changed. I, I, wow. I left knowing I needed to to know the Bible better. I needed to spend more time. I wanted to know Jesus the way that he knew Jesus. And so that just sent me on a journey for a couple of years that ultimately led to wanting to pursue ministry and seminary. And so I came here because I could learn underneath Dr. Piper. And um, so I went to Bethlehem College and Seminary. Amazing experience and graduated in 2012. That's just like Dr. Piper, isn't it? It was, it was a life-changing thing. Amazing. He was talking about the sovereignty of God and suffering, which as a you know, 20-year-old, I never thought about. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't suffered a lot in my life until that point. But to hear him talk about the sweetness of fellowship with God while you're walking through the hardest things in life, there was something so attractive about it. Something just, it took me levels deeper in what I, I knew was possible in intimacy with God. That's so, so interesting. Um, and you became a believer years before that? Yeah. You grew actually up in a came, Christian um, family? I, I did grow up in a Christian family. I have Christian parents that have now moved here to Minneapolis. Nice. So that's sweet to have the grandkids, right? Nearby. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but I came to faith through Young Life in high school. So that ministry may be familiar. There, there are Very. Young Life chapters here in Minneapolis, but that ministry is close to my heart. So came to know the Lord through Young Life in high school, came to a deep conviction of my sin and saw my need for a savior uh, and, and made my faith my own, I think, in that season of life. And then also just started discipling younger uh, younger guys, uh, freshmen and sophomores yeah. in high school, helping walk them to Jesus. And so it's a really sweet time in my life, still connected with some of those brothers now. That's amazing, Marshall. You come back on my show anytime you want. I, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's powerful, though, the, that time in a person's life, that, that high school, is it junior high or high school, young life? High school. High school, yeah. You know, it's it's just so pivotal because you are trying to do that identity formation and you're either drifting off into uh, one group or another and you find your way into a young life group. There was that positive peer pressure. You heard the gospel, your heart responded and it set your life on this trajectory, which is now you're, you know, amazing. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I got to lead young life in college at Wake Forest down in North Carolina and just to be a part of that, just like you said, that formative, that pivotal moment in so many people's lives yes. where you're asking the biggest questions for the first time, not for the last time, but for the first time. And sometimes the answers that you find in that season of life change the trajectory of your life forever. Who you marry, what kind of family you have, where you live, what you do for work, oh. what kind of ministry you give yourself to. 
So I loved that season. We're yeah. still investing in college and post-college um, students and people now in our family because that we know that season of life is so formative, just like you said. Give a word of gratitude for all the youth workers that are out that might be listening today. Incredible. Because it is amazing what they do. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I still remember Jeff Sims and D Sims and um, other leaders from Young Life that have been doing that for, for a decade already before I was in high school and, and did it for a decade or more after mm-hmm. I left. And the investment year after year in taking teenage boys and girls who wow. don't know who they are or where they're going and mm-hmm. um, what kinds of, of trials they'll face and leading them to Jesus and and, and creating habits and patterns of, of spiritual life in that season that will serve them forever, literally into eternity. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. And I applaud those youth pastors that get into youth ministry and they want to stay there. You know, I, I applaud anyone who gets into youth ministry. Sometimes it's a stepping stone to a different kind of ministry, which is great. But there's youth ministers that have been youth ministers for 40 years. Absolutely. It's clearly a call, a calling that God puts on some people's lives and it lasts, and, and you can feel it when you're with them, that they know the eternal value, the eternal fruit of this work that they're mm-hmm. doing in these yeah. relationships. Well, it's nice to get to know you a little bit. I want to hear about this piece that you wrote in DesiringGod.org. It's up today. Is it up today? Up today. It's official right now. It's called The Grace of Good Rebuke, How to Love with Hard Words. Um, how do we define rebuke? When do we pull that one out? Yeah, I would define rebuke as... Um, Going to someone that's in sin to call them to repentance. Okay. <laughs> All right. And um, I wasn't too far off when I was talking at my Bible study that day. The reason, the reason I wrote this article is because I came across – this is an area where I've wanted to grow, and so I've spent more time meditating on, on key texts on rebuke because I know how vital it is to a healthy marriage and a healthy small group, a healthy church, healthy, healthy extended family. And so I stumbled on this text in Second Corinthians 13, which is not one you often think of re- with rebuke. But I found it incredibly enlightening for how to rebuke. So he said, Paul says, your restoration, he's writing Second Corinthians, it's a letter of rebuke, it's a letter calling the church to repentance. Mm-hmm. He says, your restoration, verse 9, is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, these hard things, calling you to repentance, while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the, that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The rebuke is tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So seeing the the relationship between severity, that word severe in verse 10 there, really grabbed me. And it's in the context of restoration, comfort, peace, rejoicing. Um, clearly, Paul, this... This theology almost of rebuke in these few verses is complex. It's not simple. And, and we know if we've had to, to have hard conversations with loved ones that it's not simple. It's often very complex. And so I found a, a whole lot of help in these few verses here. How do we show the extraordinary love when we're rebuking? And, and do we rebuke or do we let the word rebuke or a little of both? For sure, I think it's both. I, th- I think anytime we're going to confront someone over sin, we should do our best to bring the Word of God with us. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't just be our opinion. It shouldn't be our sense of things, but that we should have a clear sense that God has told us this, and therefore we're coming uh, pleading for this person to confess, repent, and, and be restored. 
Um, but part of what I see in, the, in these verses that I think helps the, the how is um, what, I, what I call the goal of rebuke in the article, which here is very clearly restoration. He says in verse 9, your restoration is what we pray for. And then in, the, in verse 11, as you move down, aim for restoration. Mm-hmm. That really struck me. So if, if restoration is your goal in rebuke and not just correction, that's going to change the words that you use and the tone that you use. Um, if, if the person that you're coming to senses, I want this relationship restored. I want fellowship restored. I want sweetness restored. I want love restored. I want, I want restoration. If it's clear that we want this person back, we don't just want to, to prove them wrong or to correct them, but we want them back. I think that's really going to affect how we re- the, the tone and the words and the, the approach that we use in going to this person. Mm-hmm. I don't think we practice rebuke very much at all anymore, do we? Yeah, there's there's certainly some uh, cultures in America where it's more. My my wife's from Los Angeles, okay. So being in and among my uh, Los uh, Los Angeles family and friends, hard words are a lot more common there. You get a lot more honesty. Uh, so when you talk about speaking the truth in love, <laughs> there's a lot of truth and sometimes a little bit of lacking love. Mm-hmm. Here, my sense, having been here for more than a decade now, is that we often are reluctant to say the hard thing that. We, we might think that by not speaking the truth, by not seeing, saying what we really think and what we see, that we're, we're loving. But Paul says we, we need to speak the truth. We need to be honest in love. So um, I do think here and probably in a lot of places that we're reluctant to rebuke. It mm-hmm. feels like it's not extending grace. And, and that's why I called the article The Grace of Good Rebuke is because there's amazing grace lying here. If we really believe that there's more of God for us, if we see our sin— confront it, repent of it, kill it, and and walk in paths of, of reconciliation with God and with one another, that there's more of God there, there's more joy in God to be had there, then, then rebuke is an amazing grace to mm. us. I'm just thinking of the person that's receiving the rebuke and how long before they rebuke back when you start to feel the defensiveness. And maybe you could coach us through some ways of getting to the rebuke without alienating the moment. I mean, I know it's a hard thing, and you're talking in your article about the um, how to love with hard words. So, I mean, we're, we're on the topic, but the way in which we get to this rebuke, is there some tips you can give us? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and there is a temptation. Anytime someone comes, I feel this uh, most acutely in marriage because that's where a lot of my sin is exposed and a lot of the, the harder conversations happen, but it's also in other relationships Anytime someone comes with a hard word, the immediate temptations are to justify, to make excuses. Rationalize. To rationalize, Mm -hmm. to retaliate is what you're talking about. So to to point back and Mm -hmm. say, no, actually, you're the one that's getting it wrong. You're talking to me about this? You're bringing this up to me? Exactly. You know, all of a sudden, you go, how do I not escalate this? We know what that feels like. Oh, yeah. yeah. We know what that feels like. And so I think... um, I talk about the heart of rebuke is humility and love. And so humility is so important when you're giving rebuke and especially when you're receiving it. But on both sides, it's so important that we're humble. And Paul says here in the text that we are glad, we who are writing to you, we're glad when we are weak and you are strong. Mm -hmm. So we're willing to go low. We're willing to be weak. We're willing to take the risk to humble ourselves, to be humiliated perhaps, in order that you might be strong, you might be restored. So you feel the humility in that text, which reminds me of texts like Philippians 2, 
Three, which says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If as a, as a rebuker and as a receiver, if you have that, let me look to this other person's interests, that's going to quiet a bunch of those temptations. And the last thing that comes to mind is Jesus saying, uh, before you, you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, um, stop, take the log out of your eye. Mm-hmm. And this is a word to the rebuker first, but it's also uh, to the person receiving. If they're tempted to, to lash back, no, 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 listen, make sure you remove the log first. And then if there's a speck that's in, in the rebuker's eye, then you'll be able to pull it out. But I think humility, wanting to cultivate a spirit of humility. If someone comes to me with a hard word, I don't want to immediately get defensive, which is often our case. I want to think, wait a second, Love, when it sees sin, it gives a hard word. Mm-hmm. So this may be love right here. And if it's love, man, I want it. Mm-hmm. I want it. And so to let humility say, I'm wrong in all kinds of ways. I'm probably wrong in a thousand more ways than this person realizes. And so I want to welcome that and hear from them, learn from them the best I can, and then try my best not to retaliate, but to receive it, confess what I can, repent, and then if, the, if there needs to be a, a hard word back the other direction, that I, I make sure that that logs out of my eye first. Mm-hmm. Marshall, we need rebuke uh, because sin is so serious. It's so awful, isn't it? Yeah. And he, you, know, you mentioned bit- that, that we don't rebuke very often. And, and I think that for me, and I'll just speak for myself, I think it's because I don't take sin seriously enough. Mm-hmm. God does. He does. And we should. I mean, the Bible tells us sin is deceitful and destructive. And if it's, if it's unrepentant, if it's unchecked, then it will damn us. Sin, we rebuke because sin can ruin a soul. Mm-hmm. And so if we see sin and we're unwilling to rebuke, it means we don't think sin is all that bad. We don't think it's all that destructive. We don't think it's all that dangerous. Mm-hmm. We don't think that the deceitfulness of sin can harden a heart like ours or a heart like this person's. And so I think part of growing in rebuke is taking sin really seriously, that this mm-hmm. could kill my loved one if I left it unchecked, if I didn't say anything about it, and, it, and it's just left to linger and grow and multiply. So I do think, it, I think good rebuke uh, is motivated by a sense of the seriousness of sin against God, what yeah. sin really is and what it does. I'm just trying to establish when the rebuke is used, when that tool or that that word says, I'm going to, I need to rebuke you. If you were living in an, an open adulterous relationship and you were blowing up your family and everything was a secret and a complete disaster, I would want to come and say, you've, you've got to stop this sin. And then uh, Chris in my Bible study said, well, what about something like gossiping? Do you pull out the rebuke word for someone who's gossipy? And I thought, no, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if, if that makes rebuke sound like a bad word, and so I think part of my, by calling it the grace of good rebuke, I'm trying to make rebuke a good word, not a bad word. Nice. And so I think I like that. there are different levels. And that's part of what he's saying. I think Paul's rebuking the second Corinthians and he's saying, I'm writing to you now so that I don't have to be severe. I'm willing to be severe if necessary. And that was one of the corrections for me in, in writing the article and meditating on these verses. Paul's willing to be severe if necessary, but I don't want to be severe. He says in Galatians 6, um, if anyone is caught in transgression, let those who are spiritual restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Mm, I like that. I think that's that's a description of rebuke. So it's not like typically we're restoring with a spirit of gentleness, but then sometimes we rebuke. I think that's rebuke, going to them and restoring them with a spirit, confronting it, calling them to repentance, and restoring them with a spirit of gentleness. 
But if someone, in, in the case that you're describing, making a wreck of their marriage, their family, their ministry, um, probably there's been stops along the way on that kind of trajectory where there's been an attempt to restore this person with a spirit of gentleness, and mm-hmm. this has just been a violent rejection of truth, a violent rejection of God, a rejection of community, a rejection of his loved ones, his family. Um, that's where I think Paul's saying there's a point in these where we stop building up and we tear down. There's a point where we use severity, where we come and say, mm-hmm. if you don't turn back, God will judge you for this. Yeah. And and you don't want to you don't want to end up there. So yeah, Marshall Siegel is my guest. We're chatting about an article that he just put up on DesiringGod.org. Head over there and see it. It's called "The Grace of Good Rebuke: How to Love with Hard Words." We'll be right back. with Marshall Siegel. So glad to be meeting him, having uh, him be part of the program today. And we're talking about uh, rebuking. It's kind of a big word, but you've made it a little bit of a more gentle, meaningful, rest, restorative word, which I, I, like. I hope we're bringing some sweetness to it. I hope yeah. people, when people hear rebuke, they, they think, oh, I want that in my life, even though some of the conversations are yeah. undeniably hard. Well, let's talk about one of the vital uh, allies of rebuke. Yeah, so I think this it com- starts with a P, which is a good topic. That's, that's right. We, we, we come back next- to this in probably almost every topic you come to, but I, I, I call prayer the vital ally of good rebuke, and that comes again right out of the text. He says, your restoration is what I pray for. So not just what I seek or what, or what I'm, I'm searching for in conversation, but I go to God and I ask for your restoration. And I think this is a, it's a subtle lesson in the text, but... It's an important one because I think it's often overlooked, and I think we often feel ready – when we do feel ready to rebuke, so a lot of us don't ever feel ready to rebuke, but when we do feel ready to rebuke, where I think we need to stop and ask, are we ready to pray for this person? Are we ready to pray for this conversation? Are we ready to pray for the, the kind of change that we want to see? Because I think if we feel ready to go correct somebody, but we're not willing to pray for them, then I don't think we're as ready – to rebuke mm. as we as Good we point. think we are. And ultimately, beyond just our readiness, what we want in any hard conversation is we want God to show up. We want God to move. It's, this is not just about us convincing someone that we're right and they're wrong or that they need to change. We want God to show up. We can plant seeds, ultimately. We can water in these conversations, but we need God to bring the growth. And so that's, so I'm just, I want to make sure that in these, and and that's going to, again, just like the goal, if the goal is restoration, that's going to affect the words that we use, the tone that we use, the approach we use. Prayer is going to shape all those things too. It's, it's going to shape how we come to this person. If we're like, God, help me, help them listen when we're going, help, give us unity, give us humility together, give us love, give us restoration um, I believe God will will honor those prayers, and He will really show up. The God of the universe will come help you say the the truth in love, and He will help them hear the truth with humility and love, and He will produce clarity and unity through prayer. And so, I just want I want God to bring. We need if this is going to be successful, any rebuke, we need God to bring the clarity. We need God to bring the the change, and we need God to make that change last beyond a day or a week or a month. And so we need to pray. Mm-hmm. And the rebuking principle is for believers, right? 
And right. a, a listener say, if we are trying to rebuke in a godly manner, but are doing this to a person that has stated that the Bible is not the true word of God, is it just, but it's just a book of stories and a book of interpretations, how do we handle that? Absolutely. This, this paradigm is for believers. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is someone that we can say uh, is, wants to obey God, wants to be right with God, wants to spend eternity with God. If someone is, is not a believer, we, we can't, these steps don't work. We can still pray that they would believe and repent and be saved, but we can't treat them as if the Spirit of God lives in them. Mm-hmm. Another question, can a husband rebuke his wife? Absolutely. Again, um, I think any husband that doesn't rebuke his wife is, is, uh, is not being faithful. And I think any wife that doesn't rebuke her husband is probably not being faithful. And I, I th- again, I think we're using that, that kind of question puts rebuke in a certain category where it feels like it's like the SWAT team of spiritual health. And I'm, I'm trying to take it out of that category. I'm saying rebuke is a regular rhythm in the life of healthy relationships that you say, I see that your life is, is not in line with the gospel in this, in this particular place. And I want to call you to repentance. So I think in the marriage relationship, um, there are dynamics there that are going to be different, male to female, female to male, head um, to wife, wife to head. So I, I think we need to bring those dynamics in. But that does not mean that a wife, if a wife sees a husband in sin, that she doesn't go to him and say, here's what I see and I, I, I long for you to see this, confess, repent, and for us to be restored. Mm-hmm. Another listener, Bridget, said, as far as calling out the sin of gossip, it should absolutely be called out privately and with gentleness. I've seen it certainly destroy reputations and an entire family. Very serious. Right. And I hear Matthew 18 in, in that comment that uh, rebuke, it's good, it's good to say that rebuke should first be if, if, if a brother sins against you, you go to that brother and you tell them, and, and hope that you win your brother right there, that they see it, confess, receive forgiveness, and it's reconciled and doesn't need to be broadcast any further than that. But, but Matthew 18 tells us that if, if they don't respond there, you bring another brother or sister in the Lord. And if they don't respond to that, you bring another. If you don't respond to that, you take it to the church um, to have the church practice church discipline. So, yeah, absolutely start with if, if you see if, – if you hear someone – participating in the sin of gospel, you go to them and you say, please, I want to see you restored. I want to see this sin forgiven mm-hmm. and you to see, to see you grow and, and use your, your mouth and your words in loving ways that build other people up and doesn't tear them down mm-hmm. behind their back. When is the last time you received a rebuke or gave a rebuke? Yeah, both are very recent <laughs> okay. and fresh. Um, I'm right. so eager to, to talk about them. And, and it was interesting. I, I wrote the article before I experienced receiving the rebuke. Um, it's a very loving relationship and it, it was a truly a, a really beautiful experience. And, and it, some of the issues that we were working through were difficult and longstanding. And so I was a little bit trepidatious going into the conversation, but I prayed and I know they prayed as well that God would meet us. And he met us in a, just an incredible way. And so just from the very outset, when we talk about setting the tone and you were talking about how to set the tone and, and, and how that matters in terms of how it's received from the very first moment I walked in the door, I felt from, from this person I want you. I want this sweetness restored. I want this fellowship restored. I don't want this to come between us. I want us to be able to talk through this, um, confess what we each can confess, forgive each other, be reunited. And so it was a a really sweet experience. And then on the other side, um, having to rebuke a brother, um, it, it, uh, again, I think it went really well and they don't always go well. There's lots of Lots of experiences in my life where it doesn't go well, and, and you just have to trust God at that point that you've done 
to the best of your ability, with humility, with love, with patience, you've offered the rebuke and, and have to trust that whether it's in that moment or 10 years from now, that God will do what he can do with the truth, what only he can do with the truth in their heart. And so in this particular case, the brother really rallied to the things that I was pointing out and, and wanted to grow, wanted to confess and, and grow um, right away and, and, and is pursuing steps and growing in those ways. And so it's, it's very encouraging. So I just encourage you, if there's a conversation like that in front of you, I hope that the article of this conversation can embolden you. I prayed for that. This came in the studio, just that God would give you the courage to go to that brother, go to that sister and say, I love you. I want, I want you. I know that I'm a sinner, that I need grace and, and restoration, forgiveness from Jesus. And, uh, and I'm hoping that you'll see what I see and confess and be restored to mm-hmm. God. I love that Proverbs. I think it's in 27 that open rebuke is better than hidden love. Absolutely. That's powerful. Yeah. Marshall, please come back. It's really oh, great to, to get to know you a little bit. And uh, I know you're write, writing a lot at DesiringGod.org, uh, and we'll, we'll learn more about some of your writing, and we'll have you back soon. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much, Bill. Yep. Marshall Siegel has been my guest. Go to DesiringGod.org. You can read this article we just talked about. It's up on the website right now. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Dr. Marcus Bachman will be our guest, and we're going to continue our prayer series, joined by Dr. Peter Kapsner as well. That's all ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.